This call is being recorded. Hey, Daniel, how are you? Can't complain. How are you? Thanks for talking to me. I, I was so interested when we spoke last time. I wasn't really expecting, uh, you know, that we shared a lot of, lot of passions for things. You know, often I talk to people from your end of the world. They are very numbers-driven and are not very interested in talking about sort of the softer values of things. And I, and I'm, I was sort of surprised to hear all the stuff that you had been doing and, and stuff like that. So do you mind just sort of telling me again kind of your background? Because you, you left, you used the word abruptly, that you left abruptly. Like, can you tell me more about that? Yeah, so my background, I studied real estate and finance in undergrad, kind of decided very early on that I was interested in a real estate finance career. Studied at Wharton undergrad and then graduated in 2006, which was an amazing time to graduate with a, such a skill set or education because you could leapfrog investment banking or brokerage and go straight into real estate private equity, um, which is where at least uh, kids who are indoctrinated like I was want to end up, you know, the so-called principal side. And I started working for a firm that specialized in one thing and one thing only, and that's a value-added office, um, which is basically the, the business of buying an underperforming office building, uh, which could be underperforming for any number of reasons. It could just be kind of old and need to be renovated. It could have just bad ownership and management. You could be uh, anticipating a trend early and buying in an area before others kind of see what you see. Um, and I did that for about 10 years. Um, I started as, you know, kind of low man on the totem pole, junior analyst. And by the time I left uh, that firm, I was their director of acquisitions covering deals basically in Eastern time zone. And uh, I left kind of abruptly, as you alluded to, in 2015, uh, because I had what I now look back on as a bit of an early midlife crisis. And there were a lot of factors that played into that, both professional and personal. On the professional side, I started to get really bearish on office real estate. I mean, I had this like whole set of bullet points that I can normally rattle off in a conversation when I'm introducing myself. But um, a lot of that's just done to kind of like position the later conversation if you just want to like cut to the heart of it and keep it real. You know, really, I was concerned that uh, over the, the course of my lifetime and the rest of my career, we would see technological substitution for office space uh, through, you know, what people are calling remote work. I typically try and call it distributed work. Um, and someday I think it will just be called work with no um, adjective. You know, I thought that that would be a direct substitute for office space, which would make the demand for office space over the remainder, call it 20, 30, 40 years of my career, uh, go down over time. You know, it's very possible to, to make money uh, in a declining market. Like I'm sure there are plenty of people who make money in paper or whatever, uh, but it's just not as fun to be in a high growth market. You know, I was in my early 30s and I had the revelation that uh, this is all I've done my entire career. If I don't get out and pivot soon, you know, I'll blink and I'll wake up and that's all I've ever done. Um, so that was on the professional side, not on the personal side. When I was studying real estate and when I, you know, made that decision as a starry-eyed young kid, I never imagined that I would spend most of my time touring southeastern call centers. Uh, office real estate can just be a very, very depressing stuff. You know, people don't really go to office buildings because they want to. Uh, they go there because they have to in order to collect a paycheck, and um, the environment suffers as a result. You know, you can see this when you stand outside one of these buildings at like 4:59 p.m. There's a literal whooshing sound as people race to go outside, um, and you know that's just not what I imagined I'd be doing. I thought I'd be working in places that uh, improve people's lives and people would go to as destination, and that all was also kind of taking a toll on me. So I didn't really know what to do next. I just knew that if I didn't pull the ripcord soon and smash the golden handcuffs, uh, I would probably never figure something else out. So I abruptly quit my job. My girlfriend, Megan, uh, was at Goldman Sachs. She did the same thing. We sold all our possessions. And then uh, just like any other millennial who doesn't know what next, we decided to go on a bout of long-term world travel to kind of figure things out. Wow, <laughs> Jesus. And where did you go? Where did you first go? 
was your first trip? First trip was as cliched as could be. If I gave you one country to guess, I'm sure you could uh, nail it on the head. But we went to Thailand for a full yeah, about 60 days. Either either. Thailand or Australia. Yeah, so uh, Thailand is a little bit cliched as a destination, but I think it's cliched for a reason. It's super inexpensive. Uh, the people are super friendly and welcoming. The food is amazing, and there's a lot to do. So we went there first just to kind of like decompress and, you know, just adapt to a new lifestyle. We actually spent our first month on Koh Samui, which is an island off the east coast of Thailand. There we did uh, kind of a intense workouts and got in shape. We were doing like twice a day with like a Mai Tai kind of like fitness camp, two hours in the morning, two hours at night. So that was super fun, uh, although we got our asses kicked. And then from there, we went to the mainland. We did, uh, again, super cliche. We did a 10-day silent meditation retreat. That was one of the hardest things that I've ever done by far. But really? Tell me more experience. about that. Tell me more. Why, why is it so hard to be quiet? Is it just the, being quiet, or is it sort of being quiet with your own thoughts and not being able to distract yourself? What's the, the hardest yeah, part? Yeah, I mean, it's just a grueling experience overall. When you go there, you kind of have to check in all your things. So you have no access to, like, books or your phone or even like a pen and paper. So yeah, you are kind of alone with your thoughts. It's also, you know, Southern Thailand jungle. So you're dealing with like 100 degree heat and 100% humidity all the time. Most of these retreats, we went to one that was like one of the um, original kind of retreats where people would go on these pilgrimages starting in like the 1930s um, when like Buddhism was spreading to the West, albeit slowly. And uh, these um, take the monastic life very seriously, so it's a very ascetic. Um, women and men are separated into different dormitories. You have these, each person has a room where literally your bed is a slab of concrete with a straw mat that's rolled out on top of it. And then your pillow is a wooden block with a like curve in it for your neck, which is how... I guess Buddha slept and it's meant to kind of emulate that. And then you have to sleep inside a mosquito net for obvious reasons. There's all kinds of hostile wildlife from like geckos. I'm not sure if you've heard of gecko at night, but they get super loud to scorpions inside your room. I called it a cell all the time. There were numerous times when I stumbled on vipers uh, and I hate snakes. That was kind of annoying. Uh, there's no, like, showers or running water. You kind of have to bathe by pouring a bowl of, like, cold water on your head. Um, no toilet paper. You only eat twice a day, and it's vegetarian. And if you've ever tried, like, sitting meditation for, you know, 8 to 12 hours a day, it is just it's much harder than it sounds. Like, it really hurts your body. So all those factors combined made it pretty difficult. Wow. And at the end, like, did you, you went through the whole thing. You didn't quit. Yeah, the attrition rate is pretty bad. Uh, by the end, I think about 70% of people had quit, and all the couples who had showed up there had quit. So Megan and I were the only couple that I think made it through the entire thing. But did you see each other, or you, you were isolated the entire time? Yeah, that made it that made it a lot harder for me as well, uh, because the entire time I was not just like worrying about my own well-being. I was worrying it's like I'm into like this like weird stuff. Megan kind of had to be talked into it and I was nervous the whole time that she was miserable. We had done some scuba training. We're not like good scuba divers or anything, but we did it in Koh Tao near Koh Samui and we learned like the underwater hand symbols. And you know, you do like that okay symbol with your hand yeah. to signal that yeah, like everything's all good. I, I, I okay. The signs, yeah. Men and women are not supposed to look at each other because there's not supposed to be any sort of like sexual temptation or anything like that. And we stuck to that protocol until probably like day three or day four. I can't remember exactly which day and which point we did make contact. And I gave her the okay symbol, like kind of down at my waist. And she gave me the symbol where like you rock your hand back and forth, yeah. which in her mind was like, I'm fine. Right? Like I'm not, I'm not going to like lie to you and say I'm doing great, but at the same time, I'm not doing bad. But in scuba, it means like not so good. The entire time, I was kind of racking my brain for the next, like, few days. Like, does that mean that she wants to, like, get out of here? She's not doing all right. So that, even though you're not supposed to be thinking, you know, you're not supposed to be letting, like, the mind go, that made it a lot more difficult for me. But fortunately, 
stuck with it. And I was just like, if she's not okay, she'll let me know. What were the benefits you'd say uh, coming out of it? What did you feel clear? Did you feel, you know, was there anything relating to sort of your, your midlife crisis that you talked about? Like, did did that get sorted out? Uh, no, I mean, that's an ongoing process. I did break down towards like the, the last three days and I did develop a philosophy of life, which I haven't fully developed since, but I still kind of abide by called slow, simple, and solid. So that was a good benefit. I'm also a very good meditator at this point, whatever that means. Slow, steady, and solid? Sorry, what was the Slow, the simple, and solid. I mean, each word um, kind of has a, a literal interpretation. During the, the meditation, you do a, a mixture of, of sitting and walking meditation. And the slow part came to me during walking meditation when you're walking very quietly and slowly. And I noticed that you would notice all these things that you would otherwise not see, particularly wildlife, like all kinds of times I would accidentally like sneak up on snakes and stuff. And that's the basic idea of uh, time is relative and uh, not moving too quickly. Like there's that famous stat in New York about how if you just take a person and put them in New York City, they'll, they'll speed up their walking just because humans have a tendency to to ratchet up their speed to their surroundings. Um, so slow is a reminder to, to slow down and take advantage on the, the relativity of time. Simple is this idea of uh, baselines and basically hedonic adapt adaptation and that we very quickly kind of become comfortable with our level of, of luxury. And rather than striving to just, you know, add more and more luxury, it's a much more productive life hack to instead control your baseline and pull the baseline down and not let it uh, ever creep too high. But one thing I noticed during traveling over, uh, I think we traveled for 13 or 14 months. We basically put money into a bank account and just traveled until it ran out. One thing I noticed is that whenever we went from a, a really shitty place to a nice place, like you instantly got used to it and were cool with it. Whenever you went from a nice place to a not so nice place, it would take you, you'd be kind of grumpy for a few days. And I call it like the three day rule. And then after three days, you completely forget about the previous luxury and your baseline's reset. And then you're fine and everything's just chilling. Um, so that's the idea behind simple is like never let your baseline get too high and do things too actively ratchet it down. And what's the benefit of that then? So the benefit of that is because you, if you were to lose everything, you would be able to survive on very little, or is it that you appreciate nice things more, or is it that, what is it, what is the benefit? Because I mean, sort of excluding luxur luxurious things, I mean, there's superfluous, stupid luxury, and then there's things that are really nice, like nice sheets or whatever that one is into. But what do you see as the main benefit of having a you know a lowered baseline? Yeah, it's just that you spend more of your day, uh, like you said, not taking things for granted. Uh, you've now kind of rebalanced upside versus downside, where surprises are mostly to the upside and beneficial as opposed to um, negative and um, hurting you in some way or you know impacting on your experience in some way. And the last one, solid. Yeah, and solid is just this idea that we get you know, especially in office work and office jobs, you get very alienated from the end result of what it is you're doing. In contrast to say like some sort of classic ideal of a, a craftsman, you know, going from start to finish from raw material to final product. And you just don't, you don't get to see the tangible output of, of your work. And solid is about this idea of self-reliance and trying to stay connected to the output of your work or labor or hobbies and doing things for yourself rather than kind of outsourcing every little thing from cooking and cleaning to doing your laundry and trying to bring as much of that uh, back as possible. And the benefit there is just this, I don't know, satisfaction. I, I can't speak for you, but that I get after um, a job well done and being able to, to see it. No, I think it's interesting how most tasks are so multi-layered, both by subtask, but also over time, and even things that are super simple, where it's like pick up milk. If you were to move it or, or take it off your to-do list, then you know it needs to kind of come back right away because the milk will run out, or you know what I mean. And I think that when you're reliant on other people all the time, and you don't, to your point, don't see the whole 
beginning to end, you definitely have have less love for it, or you have less understanding for the whole the wholeness of it. So I, 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 that one I totally get. Although I I'm very convenient of me, I don't particularly like you know, cleaning and um, doing laundry and repairing my car or whatever. I, I very much uh, like the idea of the service economy taking care of that. But it is kind of humbling to know that if I were to, you know, the world were to end, you know, there's like very few things that I would be able to do. You know, I, I wouldn't be able to invent the machine that pumps water out of the ground uh, so that we can start drinking water again. Like I, that wouldn't be me, you know, and uh, my skills would be pretty useless in a, in a, an emergency. I don't know how about you, but I um, don't think I would. Be, I'd be voted off the island, I think. Yeah, there's something very uh, manly about feeling like you can do all those things, but I'm in your boat as well. Yeah. <laughs> there are a lot of things that I can't do. All these things, you came home and you talked a lot about, if we bring it back to the idea of the office, like so you, or you were helping all these companies kind of create create more value out of the same asset. And you were, you were telling me when we spoke the other day, you were saying that, you know, this is around the time when we work were really blowing up, right? And and they were getting ninety bucks a foot whilst you guys were making forty or something. Like what? Right. I'm just thinking in terms of where your head was at and where the world was at when it came to to office space and 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 office buildings. Right. So like I mentioned, I actually became super bearish on office real estate and was more or less determined to pivot my career out of office real estate, possibly even out of real estate in general. I also had a bit of a tech background and I thought I would focus on entrepreneurship in tech. But um, during the travel, I remember where I was, it was October, 2015. We were doing another cliched trip. We were in Cambodia at Angkor Wat in Siem Reap. And uh, one morning I was on my phone kind of reading the headlines that came through and I came across this BuzzFeed article entitled, WeWork used these documents to convince investors it was worth billions. And at the time, I was a huge WeWork hater. I could eloquently rattle off all these esoteric reasons that, you know, WeWork's business model was super highly leveraged by these leases. And we'd seen numerous booms and busts in the shared office industry before. This is just another iteration of that. Like, these guys were going to go down. Like, I was, I was a huge hater. So, of course, that clickbaity title... Uh, drew me straight in, and I started reading the article. And then about halfway through, there was this bar chart uh, which compared the revenue per square foot that WeWork was generating uh, to the rent it was paying its landlord. And remember, the, the, the art of value-added office investing, which is my skill set at that point, is taking an office building that leases for, say, $40 a foot and taking that 40 to 45 and if you pull that off, you've hit a huge grand slam. Like, that's, that's a great return. And meanwhile, in this chart, WeWork was taking that $40 building, not to 45 but all the way to 90 And that's when I really, um, because I had this distance between what I was doing um, and my day-to-day, that's when I, I kind of looked at co-working, not necessarily WeWork, because WeWork had a bunch of other problems, but looked at co-working uh, through a different lens. And I was like, wow. There could be a really powerful investment strategy here if only you can figure out how to channel that premium from 40 to 90, not to some uh, bloated, you know, venture capital-driven valuation, but instead to the real estate asset. And not only that, it would solve a lot of my personal gripes with, with office real estate. Like, I'd been to co-working, and, you know, it kind of pained me to admit it because, you know, there was a lot of like people just wanting to see WeWork fail for various reasons, but I actually liked the environment and I liked the product. People who were there were generally happy and smiling and had bright eyes. Um, so it solved a lot of like those gripes as well. And it didn't take me long of pondering that challenge of like, how do you steer the premium and get it valued as real estate as opposed to valued as an operating company to realize that another sector within real estate had already figured that problem out, and that's the hotel industry. And in hotels, uh, if you own a building that's a hotel, you don't go and lease it to Marriott for 10 years or 15 years, the same way an office landlord was leasing four floors in their building to WeWork. Instead, what you do is you enter into a hospitality management agreement where the 
uh, brand and manager brings their flag, they bring their design, their sales and marketing and reservation and distribution system, their operating standards and their hospitality. Uh, and they do all that work. In exchange, they keep a fee, um, typically like five to 15% of revenues, depending on the, the structure. And then the owner of the real estate keeps the vast majority of the rest. And that was the initial spark that set me on a different journey back into real estate when I got back to basically help um, pioneer that type of structure within office real estate, and also hopefully to pioneer a new uh, asset subclass within office real estate that isn't really valued like a bond, which is how most office properties are valued, but is valued more like uh, a stock and, and more like a hotel. And that's what I've been, been doing for the past uh, several years after I got back to the States from that long-term travel that I now look back on and call a sabbatical, even though at the time wasn't really referring to it as that. So what does that mean then? Okay, to be concrete, you're applying kind of the, the hotel model on real estate. So like, give me a concrete example. You, you represent then the, the owner of a building that might work well for a co-working or part of it might be good for a co-working concept. And you basically go and find an operator to operate the co-working space and get the members in and do programming and build a cool coffee shop or whatever it is. Uh, and in return for doing that, uh, the people get a fee, but whatever uh, membership revenue and food revenue and whatever else is above that fee is kept by the landlord. Is that correct? Right. So first of all, you do away with the notion of landlord and tenant, and instead you have owner and operator. So landlord and tenant is a subordinated relationship by definition where the tenant is subordinate to the landlord. Instead, you have a management agreement, which is much more of an aligned structure. It's kind of like a partnership, although technically not one. And the owner basically takes responsibility for underwriting the business, just like a hotel real estate investor is comfortable underwriting. Okay, what rates do I think I can get for this hotel in these different unit types within the hotel? What kind of occupancies do I think I can generate throughout the year? You know, what, what other income might we generate, like food and beverage or parking and valet and a dozen others? Then they underwrite the operating expenses of it, not just real estate taxes and insurance and, you know, grounds and, and common area maintenance, but also the additional personnel required to execute that business plan. So the owner um, underwrites the entire business, and then they also put up all the capital uh, to build that hotel or build that co-working operation because they're comfortable with the risk and they're doing it because they see a return on that investment and want to participate in the upside. Whereas before all that upside was going to the co-working operator. In the old model, in the WeWork model, it always struck me as when we didn't do that, when we built Alma, we raised money and paid for the construction ourselves. So we have really low uh, or reasonably low, below market rent and, which is great in times like this, for instance, uh, and we own all the furniture and we own all the assets inside and we could do it the way we wanted. We wanted to splurge on certain things. We could splurge on those things versus having to sort of negotiate with some, some builder uh, or landlord on, on kind of what build outs and, and things they would pay for. So in the WeWork case and many of the other WeWork like companies, I was always wondering how the hell they were going to start. I mean, they had time to fill it up and they had lower rent. But at a certain point, those leases would mature and they would have to start paying full rent, which was, you know, very close to and often cases above market rent because they put you know, a lot of work into it. Why did landlords do it? Like, why do landlords do a ton of renovations if they don't get any upside? Like the only renovations they get is they, they get rent. Did, what you're talking about seems much more logical. Like, yes, I will make this thing beautiful and, you know, we need to spend extra money on the lobby and the common areas that don't bring, bring in revenue, like in a hotel, obviously there are rooms and there are other places that, that you know, having an impressive lobby or whatever could, could be an important thing. They must be much more willing to do that. So the benefits are like so multiple. They get their money back. It's a better experience for the customer and for the city. And like you spend more money on like public art and things like that. Like why is this a new concept? Why hasn't it been like that before? In the office world, I mean. Yeah, it's a good question and one that perplexed me. And it's 
it's even worse than what you just described. Not only would landlords enter into leases with these co-working companies, which by definition are low credit companies, which is just bad leasing to begin with, um, if you're viewing this asset as kind of like a bond or a fixed income asset, they would also do it not with the parent company. They would do it with an SPE or special purpose entity formed specifically for that operation. So if a particular WeWork didn't succeed, but WeWork, the company, continued to prosper, the landlord who did that deal on the, the failed operation would have no recourse to the parent. Um, so it was even more head-scratching. Now, obviously, that practice wasn't common in the beginning of this cycle between call 2010 to 2015, uh, but towards the latter half of this, this cycle, it became pretty common. The best explanation for why landlords would do that, and I don't mean to sound cynical here, but it's just that uh, you know, office real estate, in my opinion, has a bit of an industrial complex surrounding it. Um, and you have a lot of players who you know, built their careers around doing one thing and one thing only, and that's a 10-year lease. And they're incentivized to kind of protect the status quo and not do something different from that. We're talking about like lenders and brokers and lawyers and conservative equity providers. And that, that inertia and that momentum is the reason why it's pretty hard to introduce a new model that requires like a new underwriting capability to be able to like underwrite the co-working and a new risk reward proposition than, you know, just giving uh, Microsoft a, a 15-year lease. That's why it's kind of hard to introduce these new models uh, into the capital markets. But it was starting to happen, um, and it was really starting to enter the mainstream as of like late last year and early this year. Now, um, thanks to coronavirus, I think the shortcomings of the co-working lease are being fully exposed as the tide has gone out. We're still too early to really see how bad it's going to get and uh, what the repercussions will be. But if it continues, uh, it wouldn't be very surprising to see a number of the, the venture-backed New York City co-working companies go into bankruptcy and, and reject a lot of the leases that they did. I think once that happens, the capital markets will really punish co-working leases. And as a result, the, the management agreement or the hotel analog structure will come into prominence. So who do you think will be the biggest losers from what we're talking about in it from a corona perspective? Like I, I saw somebody today who works for a big company and they are laying off, you know, or furloughing tons and tons of people. And they had already been starting to talking about, you know, we're not going to come back until the end of the year at the earliest. And they are looking at canceling leases and downsizing office space. And this is a massive listed company that probably has hundreds of thousands of square feet of offices around the world that are saying, you know what, we don't need it. We'll have other types of places for, for, for people to meet and congregate and innovate and, and whatever. But, you know, if you're just coming to, you know, you're commuting in to sit and, and write emails and send them to people who sit on the other side of the room, that's do it from home, for God's sake. If I rented office space, I would be uh, quaking in my boots. Like, how do you see it? Like, who do you think would be a winner and loser in this? Yeah, I mean, my experience two months into this thing has been in any conversation where you talk to someone, they basically can find a way to contort the news and contort what's going on to fit the view that they had before coronavirus. And, you know, I've been pretty clear in my view uh, around office in general over a long enough time period was that uh, remote work or distributed work was going to rise and kind of replace the, the command and control, like massive centralized HQ style office for a long time. So of course, you know, I, I can't be very objective here. I just, kind of see that playing out. And I can only um, see the headlines where like Morgan Stanley is claiming that they're going to use a lot less office into the future. And a number of the other big banks are saying, you know, fitting 7,000 people into a building is probably a thing in the past. And um, you're seeing that even like Warren Buffett is coming out and being like, I really don't know if people are going to return off at the end of this thing. That's what I see. But what's funny is I talked to a bunch of office landlords and maybe they're just doing the same thing in reverse. I see a number of them that are actually claiming that this is going to be a net positive for office absorption and office demand because prior to coronavirus, there was a trend in office real estate called densification, um, which is basically the square footage per worker been declining at an accelerated rate called over the past 15 years. 
it's often blamed on the open plan for the uh, the open layout in Office, um, which you know many people hate and wanted to see it go away. But I, I think it was also happening not just because of like how people were designing Office Space, but just because there was an increasing recognition among companies that if you actually take a seat inside an office building and you look at it, you know, the person who belongs there is only sitting there 20 to 40% of the time. It wasn't very cost effective or good for the environment or anything just to, to do that. So I think they were also shrinking their footprints and using less square footage per worker, taking into account the beginnings of remote work. But so people who are bullish on office are now saying that, oh, 150 square feet per worker now because of social distancing and because people just hated the open plan layout to begin with is going to go to 250 or 300. So now we've just increased office demand by 40 to 50%. And then there are a lot of people who are like, yeah, people are, are overreacting, which is just pretty typical in a crisis. Everyone will go back to normal. You know, everyone's going to go back to, you know, waking up at 7 a.m., putting on business casual, hopping in their car and commuting uh, for an hour to sit inside the box. I don't think so. Box. I really don't buy it. I'm sorry. I think that <laughs> I, I, I think talk that to people who, who think it, w it will go back to normal. Yeah. I think those are people with no imagination. And I think that's, I mean, I really think that. I think that there's this like large company arrogance, you know, and I, and I have friends who work at big companies and, you know, and you, and you've talked to them about stuff or I remember talking to somebody uh, who works at a big food retailer and, you know, early about internet and all these like, delivering food to, to people's houses and all this stuff. And he's like, ah, eh, you know, whatever. It's, it's such a small amount of money and it's this dent and it, we, it, we don't care. And like that arrogance of like, we, we, if it isn't a billion dollar business, we don't care. And then that little thing that started all of a sudden snowballs and then it changes behavior because it brings value to people in a way that these big corporations just stopped caring. They just stopped caring about their customers, I think. And I think that that's what we will see. Like you built this office and yes, you sent out some survey about what, what would we want to see. And yes, you've put like a, you know, some snacks in a kitchen and there's lots of micro ovens for people's disgusting food to be heated up. And yes, there's natural light in some places, but it hasn't changed since like an office since the 1820s and 30s. It's the same thing. It's a desk, a light, a thing. And most days now I am in meetings all day. So I come in the morning and I leave my jacket and my bag at my desk. And then I'm in meetings all day, bouncing around different conference rooms, looking for conference rooms to be in because they're always full. Meanwhile, thousands of square feet of desk space is empty and we're all huddled into a little room somewhere. And then I go back to my desk, grab my jacket and my bag and go home. It's like my desk was empty all day. And I think that the biggest thing about remote working, which is why it hasn't taken off, is I think that people don't trust their employees. They, you know, this whole idea of working from home is like, yeah, yeah, working from home. And now everybody's working from home. And, and I think a lot of people see like, I'm more productive now than I was before. And I can be more flexible. I can eat when I want to. And I can see my kid when I want to. And I can go for a walk if I feel really stressed out or whatever. And I, I don't know. I just, I just think that, yes, shitty companies will go back to forcing people to do exactly what they did. But I don't think anybody who cares about talent or cares about their people can just go back to normal. I, I don't see how. Do you? Do you think that it could be go back? I'm bracing myself uh, for the worst, worst case. I definitely agree with you, and I think it's uh, a brighter future uh, where people don't have to, to do that um, unnecessarily. I, I think there's also another reason just to take the opposite side from both um, what you and I see and what you and I want. A lot of people are conflating work from home for distributed work or remote work when they're not the same. You know, being quarantined inside your house with your young children um, is obviously going to be a pretty distracting, challenging environment. I mean, there are a lot of people who are like, this experiment failed. Like, get me back into the office as soon as possible. You know, I want some separation. I want to see some adults again. And then I think for a lot of people, the office is their primary social outlet. Uh, and if they don't have, like, a good structure in place right now they're also kind of feeling kind of lonely and that's another reason that might drive the desire to be back into the nine to five style office i think you can recreate a lot of that social interaction in a different form of office but a lot of people might be confusing the two 
Yeah, I agree. I mean, of course, and if there was a space where there were lots of conference rooms, there were places where you could sit in an office by yourself, old school, and have your, you know, your, your peace and quiet and, and listen to music or whatever it is that you do. And then there were like more open space, collaborative environments, and there were different type of conference rooms. I, I don't understand why every conference room is always the same. It's this glass box that is, I guess the glass is supposed to symbolize transparency somehow, that you can you can see who's on the other side and therefore the company is transparent, which is of course absolute bullshit. For me, it's like all that all that space is distracting to see people walk by you and, and all that wall space could be used for other things. But I just think that when we go back to go back to this and we can interact with people normally and go to restaurants and bars and things like that, then then all of a sudden the idea of commuting in if you're not for that social interaction and, and working as a team member, then you're right. Then why would you, you know, you might not want to sit, you know, in your, in your kitchen with your kids running around, but uh, maybe there's a, there's a middle ground. One thing I was thinking about to do the average math, you're saying that's roughly 150 square meters per employee. How do you do the math then for like what, how much money someone spends on space? Is it 150 times the rent, times electricity, times the office chair. Like what is a typical number, a cost for a an employee in a big company? Well, on the supply side, which is what I'm on, you're trained to think in terms of per square foot, right? Because office is a commodity. And on the demand side or the occupier side, you just kind of take your total cost and divide it by your number of people and you think about it in terms of per employee, which is what you were just getting into. It requires a lot of cost accounting to properly quantify um, how much a company is spending per person on their office or on their corporate real estate footprint. Um, and it depends, if you just do like the simplest, if you take rent plus utilities plus amortized furniture plus maybe like some consumables like your coffee maker and maybe even if you throw in like your office admin or something, you know, estimates come in depending on whether or not you're in like Manhattan versus Kansas City or something, somewhere between like 5,000 to 15,000. But then um, if you're trying to spin up a bull case for flexible office or, you know, non-long-term leases, you can start to add in other um, kind of hidden costs, like the, the cost of capital on, you know, your security deposit or your letter of credit, um, the, the cost of inflexibility, right? Like the the idea that over 10 years, you're probably going to miss your head headcount projection and you're either going to need more people, in which case you're going to get kind of jammed by your existing landlord as you go to expand and that has a certain cost, or you're going to over project your headcount and you're going to be renting space that you don't need. So then you can also try and factor those things in and there's no accepted wisdom yet as to, to how to properly do that. So there's been a ton of talk, obviously, about the death of the office. I mean, the, the article you sent me. So maybe it's not the death of the office, but it's like the rechanging of the office as it as it looks. I, I thought when we spoke on the phone, you mentioned a few of the, you know the cooler spaces, not the call centers in, in Cincinnati, but some of the cooler spaces you worked on. You've done something with Bell Labs and things like that. Like, tell me a little bit about your bearishness on the office space from a kind of design perspective of, of sort of that they look and function and the program, the architectural program of them is kind of outdated. Talk to me about that a little bit. If you take the remote work headlines and extrapolate them out, it inevitably ends up with the, the headline that you just mentioned, like the death of the office and there is no office. I also have this uh, quote that I'll often put up from uh, Sir Richard Branson, where he says, like, in 30 years' time, we're going to look back and wonder why the office ever existed. I actually don't think that the office is entirely going to go away. I just think that it's going to evolve from what it was before, which is very much a functional place. Like you went to the office to do work and you had to technologically 20 years ago, right? Like you needed access to your CRT monitor. You needed your desktop computer, your landline phone, your internet, your paper filing cabinet, um, your interaction with workers. Like you had to go to the office to do your work. But now technology has made it so that you can do that work from anywhere, which we've known for a long time. I've been doing it for half a decade, if not longer. Uh, but now everyone is really learning. And if you can do your work from anywhere, and oftentimes it's much easier to get work done than in the office. Like even 10 years ago, if I really needed to write like an intense like 50-page memo or build a model, 
like I would often like not do it in the office because I knew there'd be a bunch of people distracting me all day and I just needed to get into the zone. Um, so I think that the office, and we were starting to see this happen, goes from a functional place to do work to a social place. And what I mean by social is the, the main reason you go to the office is to see other people and to interact with other people. And I've been predicting that for a few years now. It's a little bit, I'm sure with you, it's not contrarian, but um, with other people, especially older folks and boomers, um, it's a bit contrarian right now when, you know, one of the most used phrases you hear everywhere you go is social distancing. But I think that once the, the virus goes dormant and people get comfortable with the risk, um, that that prediction will remain true. So if the office becomes a social place, then it has to be redesigned from um, kind of this functional, like it's kind of a, a factory for the human mind. You know, we need people with workstations and it becomes much more engaging like what you were talking about where, you know, there's much more emphasis on meeting spaces and there's a much more variety in the meeting spaces as opposed to just kind of a one size fits all. Also, you know, I think companies, what you were saying before is that, uh, yeah, these big companies will just kind of force their employees back to the old way of doing things. I think the optimistic view on remote work and the way it like really changes work culture is if it just becomes status quo and table stakes that if you want to attract top talent, like you have to have this flexible work policy and that's how employers are kind of forced to change. Um, if that change does happen, and I think both you and I are hopeful it does, these employers are still going to want their people to come into the office from time to time for culture building and just for getting the team together. And to do it, I think they'll have to attract them there. And so, you know, one of the pithy lines I like to say, and it's a bit of a double entendre, is, you know, the office will have to be transformed from an obligation to a destination. Um, and the obligation is, has two meanings. A lease is obviously an obligation, but um, from the perspective of the person or the worker, you know, it's a place that they used to have to go from nine to five in order to, to collect their check. Um, and when you think about an office as a destination, that obviously changes the uh, the design of it. Totally. I think that the interesting thing is, like, if you think about the word productivity, I find kind of interesting. And I think, you know, being Swedish and having grown up in a place where, you know, vacation is a right and healthcare and paternity leave and maternity leave and things like that, some of the stuff that we're talking about here has been has been the law of the land for forever. And so for me, this idea that, like, we're going to somehow become build a space that's more productive and to try to get productivity up is, I mean, we've already lost to Korea and Japan and Asia, like all these other places that where there's seven, you know, six day work weeks. Uh, and, you know, you get here in America, you get like one or two weeks of vacation. It's totally normal. That would never work in, in Europe. And with AI and machine learning, obviously a lot of jobs that are have been done by people in the same way that, you know, industrial revolution, you know, you had, you know, before, before the steam engine, you know, we used muscle. It was either human muscle or animal muscle that did pretty much everything. And all of a sudden you had a machine. That's, I think the same thing will happen to tons and tons of jobs that are where like, you don't, it doesn't really matter if it's you or this other person who does it. I just need muscle to, to like somebody to fill it out. And so if you start thinking about your, not just your office, but your company as this sort of talent management company, like we're managing a basketball team where, you know, we need to make sure that everybody is playing and they're healthy and happy and they eat well and they get massages because their muscle needs to be, thought, you know, or whatever it is, right? If you think about that analogy for office work, like, okay, in this, this company, we make money on putting out you know, content or code or whatever, you know, and the people who make that need to be really taken care of. They need to be work and, and be inspired and work together and have all the tools. And that, that changes things, not just the layout of a conference room, but, you know, the typical IT department is like this grumpy person who comes to your desk and like, have you tried to restart it? You know, who's just not helpful at all. Or the HR department is just like, these people who are, you know, I, I've never met anybody in HR that I liked. You know, they seem to be the least interested in human interaction of, of, of all the people in the company. And you change that around. And instead, it's like, hey, welcome to, to company X. Like, how do you 
like to work? Tell me, are you a morning person? Are you an evening person? Like, how do we get you to do your work the most creatively and effectively and interestingly? Like, how do we, how, you know, how do you like to travel? Are there places around the world where you have family? So that if we send you on a business trip, you might want to fly through, you know, fly through Wisconsin because you can visit your grandma. Like, it just changes the attitude from, you know, you're here, you should be damn lucky you're here so that, you know, to we're happy to have you because we know you'll go somewhere else that you don't. And we're going to make you happy because if you're happy, you'll make us lots of money. That to me just seems obvious. Yeah, I think we were definitely starting to see some of that begin going back to, you know, automation. A long time ago, we automated routine manual labor. Um, we have not been able to automate non-routine manual labor and probably won't for a while. Um, and we certainly see the start of automating routine cognitive labor and won't be able to do the same for non-routine cognitive labor. And, and the office has really been designed for routine cognitive labor. Um, like if you look back at photos of the office in like the 1940s or the 1950s, they will make people who think the office is too dense today, like stand on their heads. It's just nothing but rows and rows of packed together desks where people are just kind of sitting there dealing with paper. Right, like the, the early definition of computer before digital computers was a person who sits at a desk and performs calculations all day. Um, and that's what really the office was designed for. It's kind of, I've used the term before, like a factory for the human mind. Um, and offices were really being designed with the same principles in mind that you would design a factory. Um, and obviously, I think at least for uh, creative types of work and knowledge work, as opposed to just service work, there needs to be a different design that, that takes into account non-routine cognitive labor. Getting into treating employees kind of like star athletes gets into a separate host of issues that we were also trying to see, just kind of like the increasing divide between the, the haves and have-nots, but that might be um, too deep of a subject to get into here. No, but I, I mean, I think that, yeah, the analogy of the sports thing, obviously the sports star makes a hundred X what the average, you know, the coach or the, maybe not the coach, but like what the service person makes. And I don't know if the, if it has to be that big a difference, but I, obviously there already are differences, but I think that the, the idea is, is that servicing or being part of the, you know, of servicing or producing on behalf of the talent in the company is also a talent. You know, if you, you know, most office canteens are these depressing you know, stubby food you eat and you have to go lay down or it's like some yucky salad or it's like, you know, it's not at all a place where you want to go. You do it out of convenience. You slobber down a sandwich in front of your computer. But if if, if you're saying, hey, we want to attract really smart people, really interesting people, then, then a lot of those people are high performing and they care about what they put in their mouth and they exercise and they are healthy. And, a, you know, a growing part, part of the population is you know, is reducing their meat intake or eating, you know, or vegetarian or vegan and there are all sorts of allergies and, and intolerances around. And all of a sudden you look at most of these, even the, the quote unquote fancy cafeterias like Condé Nast have had a nice, is still not nowhere near to compete with a restaurant out on the, like just a regular restaurant uh, in terms of variety and quality of food and, and whatever else. So I think that it, the gap between the haves and the haves not, are, I think, are increasing. I mean, even even as what we're talking about here, this idea that I and you can work remotely is obviously a massive privilege, uh, and that's not true for everybody. Tell me a little bit about you mentioned you mentioned Bell Labs when we spoke last time. You you sold that building, or what? Tell me what would that how that came up. Uh, the company I worked for had bought one of the former Bell Labs campuses. There were a couple in northern New Jersey. And uh, through that process, I read the uh, the Idea Factory and became uh, familiar with uh, the way the Bell Labs site was designed in order to promote kind of serendipitous encounters. Like all things, you know, people have a tendency to get a little too dogmatic about uh, like open office layouts versus closed layouts. And in reality, it's typically a happy medium between the two that works best, which I think Bell Labs achieved by um, creating kind of like the, the central meeting places with a bunch of signs going off. Uh, that was what I think we uh, spoke about before. Have you seen other places around the world? I mean, it's, it's not just limited to offices, but have you have you thought of the places in our lives and throughout history and, and throughout the world that have just 
disproportionately spat out good stuff. I mean, there's certain restaurants, even in New York, that are been around from the, you know, since the 70s or 80s, and there's still a hotspot. And then there's a newcomer that just doesn't make it. Or some offices you walk into, you just feel like, oh, this is a friendly, warm place. And then there are other places. I, I just watched The Assistant. I don't know if you watched it. It's, uh, it's a, I mean, it's basically takes place at a f- movie company like a Miramax and there's an assistant who kind of stumbles across this things that are happening. The boss is basically Harvey. And, uh, and I, when I first moved to New York, I worked for a film producer and, and my wife works in television. So like they get everything right. Like the way that they talk and, you know, the assistants have a language when they call and call people back that they nailed. And there's a lot of little things like, it takes place somewhere in the, sometimes in the 90s and like they're opening all these like everybody had Fiji water it was very like the, the snobby water they got all these things right but the office you can just tell like it is so miserable like everyone's miserable no one's laughing no one's smiling they're unfriendly it's catty it's just cold the lighting is blue it's just like oh and uh, I don't know I just think then there are these other places that you walk in and you go, wow, like you can just tell that people are happy and, and it doesn't have to be fancy always. It's just, it's just feels creative. Like, do you have thoughts on that? Like when you, because you must have toured so many places and just seen like some places it's amazing and some places it's not. I mean, I'm still looking for that kind of universal design or geographical factor that can, you know, create just an amazing office workplace I spent a few years in San Francisco, and while I was there, made sure to kind of visit all my friends who worked at the Facebooks and Apples and Googles and Amazons to see what those offices were about. And and those places definitely kind of treat their employees and spend on them as if they're star athletes. I think uh, Facebook spends something like $40,000 a year in, like, office perks on their employees from busing them from San Francisco down to Menlo Park to all the different cafeterias to the fitness and wellness options. That was pretty interesting, but those companies make so much money per employee that they've got kind of monopoly profits. So they're able to do things with their office that I just don't think are generally applicable to a normal company. You know, I don't think those companies are successful because of their office. It's the arrow of causality kind of goes in a different direction. They have amazing offices because they're successful. One thing I do think a lot about with with office is this idea of the Lindy effect. Have you ever heard of that? The Lindy? No, I haven't heard of that. It's just this rule that when you're talking about inorganic things, so things that aren't alive, the longer it's been around, the longer it likely will stay around. And conversely, the the shorter something has been around, the more likely it is to uh, not be in the future. Huh. Um, and I think about this when it comes to real estate. Like if you go back and you read ancient texts, you read like the Bible, you can find signs of all the core real estate assets except for office, right? Like you can obviously find housing and apartments. You can obviously find hotels, like examples of inns um, where people were staying. You can find retail where people were, you know, having restaurants or um, selling goods, you can find industrial, right? You can find industrial with like uh, workshops and granaries and things like that. Uh, but you can't find any sign of the office in like the ancient history. It's like the closest analog to the office, and you really have to like squint to see it, would be like either libraries or religious institutions. And if you start to think about it, like, oh, I guess the only thing that, uh, that those stand for, which is really what the origin of the office was, which is housing paper. Right? Like that was the main purpose. And then if you, you know, move several thousand years into the future, the, the first office building is widely considered to be the administrative offices of the East India Tea Corporation in London. And then uh, that was the first office. And then there was, that went away. That was abolished. Um, and then there was no real office until the late 1800s when you saw the, the rise of mercantilism coming out of the Industrial Revolution. And this is like what, kind of like the office you'd see in like Ebenezer Scrooge and like the Christmas tale. It's kind of like this this small merchant's office where you've got housing on the second floor, but you've got like a couple rooms on the first floor. 
And then you really saw the rise of like modern office as we know it in the early 1900s after corporations were invented. And that's when, when like the modern office lease as we know it came about. Um, and so think about it, like if, if office has really only been around in this short time period relative to everything else in real estate and using the, the Lindy effect, like does that mean um, that the office as we know it could go away? That's interesting. So the Lindy effect is applicable to not just basically anything that is ma- a material, not alive, you're saying? Yeah. Interesting. 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 I've never heard of that. That's great. Are there other places in the world or in history that you've sort of been drawn to or read about? Like, because there seems to me that there are these places, uh, maybe it's partly Lindy effect, but, you know, that, that are just have something magic, that there's something really special. Like other places like that that you've thought about, that you've seen or been to? Trying to think if there are any that come to mind, like obviously like the Renaissance or, you know, the 1960s and 70s and early. But I'm thinking even you can go even beyond, you know, beyond the hotel. I mean, there's there's obviously certain places on, on uh, you know, there institutions or schools or but there are, you know, restaurants and bars. There are, uh, you know, I, I was talking to uh, our mutual friend packy the other day and he was telling me that there was a study done during prohibition and have you heard of this uh, there were no. certain places in in america where different counties in a state or, or around america had prohibition during different times and so they you can you can quite accurately compare sort of commercial activity and and overlaying that with when if they were serving alcohol or not if bars were open and there was a there's a a notable and kind of severe difference between companies being started and patents being filed uh, and if the state was dry or not. Like when the, the states that didn't serve alcohol, when they didn't serve alcohol, had less commercial activity. People didn't apply for a patent. People didn't innovate. People didn't start companies. When bars were open, they did. We're seeing that right now with cannabis. You can almost use cannabis regulation as kind of a leading indicator of economic activity. It's been pretty consistent. I don't know if it's related or it just suggests that like progressive governments and, and pulling back regulation supports the economy or if there's something inherent to cannabis, I don't know. But You mean that you can see in different, I haven't seen that study. Is it, is it coming out of based on different places in Canada or Canada versus the U.S.? Not Canada versus the U.S., just cannabis in general. So like Denver has been a very fast growing market over the past 10 years. It's an example of a a market with a progressive rules towards cannabis. Same thing with California. Oh, cannabis. Sorry, I thought you said Canada. I'm sorry. Ah, okay. You're saying, that, okay, that's interesting. Yeah, marijuana. Very similar to the, the prohibition thing. Right. But I guess the, the study from the prohibition validates it the other way because they went back and forth between different states and different counties. So it wasn't like, oh, the progressive state, which is progressive, attracts progressive people and therefore has more ideas and comes up with better laws or, or more progressive laws. In this case, it, it kind of went back and forth. And I wonder if that's true for cannabis. But yeah, that's interesting. That's really interesting. I don't know. I just think I just think the places for people to congregate, for like-minded people to hang out and be comfortable and feel welcomed and maybe a little bit, you know, spoiled or at least or at least comfortable. You know, will never go out of style and uh, and has always been been sought after, obviously. Uh, and I think that maybe we can start designing our offices a bit more sort of human centric than like productivity uh, focused and and perhaps you know almost like reward people for coming or making that experience that you were saying and i think that there are many things i don't think there's one fundamental like oh if you design it in blue then everybody will feel more creative i think those things tend to become these like ridiculous like oh we have to have open everyone's everyone's open like it's a combination to your point. It's like there's different types of surfaces, different types of people. It's like we are catering to the entire individual, just like good schools now are catering to the whole student, not just, you know, this is how we do it. And I, and I don't know why workplaces would be any different. Like obviously different people work and learn and grow and interact differently. And to have one size fits all just doesn't make any sense. The conformity that naturally comes with an office that everybody has the same is kind of what kills it a little bit. Right. I think it, I think it goes back to this mind shift of how people view the office. And I think the utopian future is uh, to view the office as a destination. We're creating this as a place where people choose to come. And 
it's incumbent on us to figure out, and we may not know what that is today, but to figure out like what we do in terms of like where we locate it, how we operate it, how we design it to make this a place that people want to come to and, and choose to in their own free time as opposed to mandating this is when you have to be in the office, which of course will, will stifle that kind of innovation. I spoke to somebody who lives in, in Basel and he was telling me that some of these companies like Google, and, and I think it was Google particularly, that were recruiting a lot of designers and, and other sort of senior people out of, out of Switzerland, you know, they tried to build kind of a campus, you know, outside one of the big, outside of Zurich, I think, and, and do it what they've done in the U.S. But it didn't work because people were like, no, no, we live in the city and I want to bike to, to the office or, or walk to the office and, and go for a beer afterwards. Like life balance is much more much more important to us because we're senior and we're European and, and this whole idea that I, that might be acceptable to a 20 year old of like, I'm going to live at the office, I'm going to Uber to the office and live at the office and eat at the office and train at the office and have a beer and play foosball after, after I stop working at the office is like unacceptable to these people. And, and they were like, no, no, I'm going to go home and have dinner with my family afterwards. And I don't want to commute for an hour. And they had to kind of redesign their whole thinking. So I think that even these very creative places that are catering to their and treating their talent and paying their talent very well and paying a lot of money for them to be happy, even they, I think, have stumbled across because they're like not thinking that, you know, there are different types of office space that appeal to different people. It's amazing that it, there's not more conversation and maybe in your world it is. And maybe in the financial sector, you talk about subclasses and asset classes, real estate, but it is fascinating to me that there isn't more conversation. I mean, we talk a lot about our homes and there's, shows about our homes and decorating shows about our homes and there's stores about that we spend so much time at the office and it's such an important part of our lives that it's weird that it's not more conversations about it, don't you think 100 percent. the swiss people they have their priorities straight yeah well, that's true maybe they shouldn't yeah, maybe we shouldn't care well listen it was really great to talk to you i don't know do you, do you have anything that that you think we didn't touch upon that you would like to to mention or say or talk about no i mean i think we're in some some very interesting times right now I think it's folly to try and predict uh, how the trends are impacted, accelerated, decelerated. But I think uh, what everyone's tracking right now is to see if there are any long-term, lasting, secular changes as a result of coronavirus. Yeah. Do you have a, I don't know, you don't want to predict things, but what's your, I feel like from, from a basis of coronavirus, I think that there's a lot of things that have happened. One is I think the, the, the security and like being able to respond to these things quicker and better, I think is something that will come up on the, on the more sort of mature side of things. And then I think that this like, you know what, and actually we need to trust people. We need to, you know, you're, if you're not doing your job, then sitting at the office, not doing your job or sitting at home, not doing your job should be obvious if we don't if we have no way of tracking whether you do your job or not we have to like watch you do it then maybe there's something wrong in how we manage people and maybe there are other systems for that the other thing that i think is fascinating is you know there's so many people i know who work at big corporations especially if they're not tech driven who you know hack their own office they're like they download you know expensify apps to deal with uh, receipts and all that stuff. They have like, you know, they set up their own hack around being able to put things in the cloud because the company doesn't allow it. And they have like, you know, very strict sort of rules around what you can and cannot leave the server or whatever. So everybody comes up with hacks around it. You know, they, you send an email to yourself and you upload or whatever. And, and that's also crazy. Like that a, a, an employee has to spend time kind of learning and working around the infrastructure of an office or a company's sort of IT structure versus the other way around of saying, you know, we're going to make it easy for you to do the things that we we're actually paying you to do. And I think that will become clear. Now, when even the oldest, the oldest, the, you know, the most careful company or the most Luddite company, I should say, is like working over Zoom and, and things like that. Um, so I think that there will be a lot of positive things coming out of the corona thing. I hope, I hope so, too. Uh, there's a lot of predictions in certain circles I'm in about all this social distancing and people not wanting to be near each other. But I'm a contrarian in those circles. I think that people are fundamentally very social animals and have a, a huge need to be around other people and enjoy it. So I don't think that restaurants and bars and you know getting in a conference room, I don't think that's going to go away. 
I think it may yeah, be impacted over the short term, but I think it will definitely come back, if not come back stronger. Do you have, you know, you sent me that article, uh, I'd actually seen it because I read The Economist. Did you, uh, do you have, are there particular forums or sources or, or literature or sites that you follow for these types of things? Or is that just, you know, just interested in being out? Or is there a particular source that you think like this one is really ahead of the curve? In terms of a periodical publication, not really. You know, I might see an interesting article here or there on Twitter or my Google News Alerts, but there's not someone who's uh, reliably writing on the, the things that we touched on. Well, it's it's really fascinating. I, I didn't know people like you existed, really. And uh, I mean, I did sort of, but I, but the, the fact that you sort of seemed to both left and right brain, <laughs> it, it was really fascinating. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much for taking the time on a, on a Sunday. I'll let you go and enjoy what's left of it. And uh, I hope we, we talk again in the in the near future. Well, let's stay in touch because there's so much happening. I would love to check in with you every now and then. To yeah, see it'd be great. What you're thinking.